This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with back in Antioch and back in the saddle. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. The gospel comes to Philippi. Paul and Silas in jail and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. I avoid using pronouns for transgender-identifying persons, and I reject the new vocabulary because I've seen the suffering to which it leads. I often compare Mormonism to like a, a pressure cooker, but it's got no release valve. And they just keep turning up the heat, try harder and keep improving, keep striving. The Holy Spirit doesn't use errors. He doesn't use false statements. And confidence in certain false statements might actually land you in hell instead of in heaven. Our greatest problem is not suffering. It's suffering and dying without Christ. Higher Things attendees receiving free copies of Objections Overruled, Love, Issues, etc. The Apostle Paul talks about rightly handling the Word of Truth. There is the Word of Truth. This is God's inerrant Word. It is revelation from Him. It is truthful. But we as sinners can mishandle it. And the key to rightly handling God's Word, one of the big keys, is to properly distinguish between law, God's Word of law, and gospel, God's Word of gospel. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, August 21st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's part 11 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. We'll be continuing our conversation with Dr. Carrie Gress discussing the history and the future of feminism. We'll spend some time with Dr. Ross Johnson discussing Maui fire relief efforts. And then post-Dobbs pro-life momentum, is it flagging? We'll answer that question with Harry Shear, Communications Associate for Americans United for Life. Joining us for part 11 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, Pastor Will Whedon. He's assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois formerly served as Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he's host of the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Well, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. It has been some weeks since we've had this conversation, so just by way of review, where are we and how we have we come here? Okay, last time that we were together studying this, we engaged in thesis number nine. And this really is the thesis, I think you said when we began, it's like the heart of the book. It it really is because he begins this thesis on the 14th evening lecture, I think. And then he continues unpacking this same thesis through the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th evening lecture. It's going to be a while till the 19th evening lecture before he's going to move on to a new thesis. And I think the reason was because this thesis impacted him very much personally. So 
what we heard was, you're not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you point sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law toward their own prayers and struggles with God and tell them that they have to work their way into a state of grace. That is, do not tell them to keep on praying and struggling until they feel that God has received them into grace. Rather, point them to the word and the sacraments. So, He sees this as one of the big failings of the church that he himself was nearly misled into, that, oh my goodness, I don't feel in my heart that I've really been forgiven and received into grace. So how do I know that I have been? And the church's answer to that through the pietists at the time was, well, man, you just need to pray more and wrestle more with God over this. He'll get you to that point of grace sooner or later, but you got to keep struggling till you get there. He's going to introduce us to one, uh, John Philip Rosinius. Who is this and why does he spend so much time talking about what this man said? Well, Rosinius was a really influential pastor, born in 1705. He, uh, he ministered all the way to 1761. And he notes that from uh, 1748 on, he was senior of the ministerium at Frankfurt on mine. And that he was really good in so many areas, but boy, did he screw up in this area. And he wrote a book about it that was very influential, went through any number of copies in his own day, basically dividing out what kind of communicants are there. He, he, he divides out the number of types of communicants there are. And he doesn't say like there's a worthy and an unworthy, kind of like the, the, the Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, or that we have in the small catechism. Instead, he's got all these kind of divisions it becomes very confusing for Walther and others as they try to fit themselves into the pattern that he sort of lays down there. So it probably would be worthwhile at the beginning to note that now we are in January, it's toward the end, January 23rd in 1885, that he begins this next evening lecture. But he actually doesn't begin with the pietists. He starts with a little bit of a blast at Rome. It's actually tied together with the pietists because what they both have in common is that they do not deliver to a person the certainty of the salvation that they can have in Christ. And Walter sees this as capital offense. So is it okay just to read a little bit from him? I mean, he's just so good here. Sure. He says, you know that the papists teach that even godly persons do not enter heaven immediately after death. Rather, before they are allowed to see God, they supposedly must pass through what the papists call purgatory. That is where they claim the dead are purified from sins for which they have not made full atonement by being tormented in its fire. Hence, even worse, the papists teach that no one, not even a sincere Christian, can be assured in this present life that he is in a state of grace with God, that he has received the forgiveness of sins, and that he will go to heaven. Only a few, they say, are excused from this rule, like the holy apostles and extraordinarily great saints, to whom God has given advance information by revealing to them in an extraordinary manner that they will reach the heavenly goal. This is what he's sort of taking aim at, and it will be what he's taking aim at also through the the way that the pietists develop a very similar approach. People not being able to be sure of their salvation because they're being thrown back onto their own works. 
Rome obviously did this with purgatory. I guess, isn't it kind of true, don't you think, Todd, that since Vatican II, they've kind of soft-pedaled and pushed purgatory into the background, but it's still there. I mean, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's still there, maybe with more of a focus on purgation than as a sort of place, purgatory. But it's still very much the idea that, hey, there are things that you will have to pay for that apparently Christ, by his own suffering and death, did not pay for. And that's the heart of the problem right there. Is he kind of building a bridge to say that the pietists had an error that basically landed you in the same place mm-hmm. as Rome? Rome will save purgation for after you breathe your last, the pietists will make you undergo it right now. <laughs> right. You've got a little bit of purgatory to go through right now. Yeah, I think that's absolutely where he's headed with this. To him, this attacks the, the crown jewel of the Lutheran church, which he definitely needs to be able to clearly articulate to people that they can indeed reach an absolute certainty of their salvation because their salvation is resting in the promise that is in the heart of God toward them. It's not resting in them and in what they do. It actually finds its place of rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this becomes a huge issue. It's an issue all across the board. In fact, you know, just this past week, Todd, I had a young man who wrote to me who was distressed by some of the polemics of the Eastern Church trying to uh, make him doubt his own salvation so that he would join with them and then he could be with them unsure of whether or not he was saved. And I kept on trying in my conversations with him to just point him back to, to the scriptures and ask, so is this how the scriptures actually speak? I mean, what do you do with 1 John 5? You know, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, it's very important to actually get the impact of the good news, to realize that eternal life is something which has been fully and completely delivered to you in the Son of God. He gives it to you whole. That is not something that you have to question or be afraid of. It's something that you can rest confidently in. I pointed out any number of times, something actually I heard in a beautiful sermon at the International Center, but the early Christians would never have been praying, come Lord Jesus. If they were uncertain if he were coming to send them to hell or not, they were confident he was coming to rescue them from wrath and to bring them into the joy of the kingdom. And so in that confidence, they could pray, come Lord Jesus. And that then explains the joy that rang through the church, especially in those early centuries, and the joy that sort of sprang up again at the Reformation and began to fill all the hymns that You don't have to be in doubt about this. You can be absolutely certain that God is reconciled to you in Christ. And because of this, you can have true peace of conscience, the peace of knowing that the blood of Jesus really has atoned for the sin of the entire world. So how does he get us to the, really some of his own experiences with uh, the pietism that had so infected Lutheranism and failed to rightly handle God's word? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he first of all sort of bridges from the, the papists with this. Um, he says, Our dear Lord Jesus Christ requires of his followers that they wrestle with their own flesh and blood, the world and the devil, and that they be faithful to death. That's not a question. He requires of them to renounce all that they have, to come after him, to take up the cross daily, and to deny themselves and to follow him. He tells them in advance that if they live in him, the world's going to hate them and revile them and persecute them even to the death. And 
he says, look, come on, if what the papists are teaching here is true, who would desire to come to Christ or to cling to him if you go through all of that and you have no idea whether or not you've actually gained the kingdom? So he says, unquestionably, the doctrine of doubt is the most horrible error into which a Christian can fall because it puts Christ, his redemption, and the entire gospel to shame. This is no laughing matter. And then he says, so what's the root of this error? What causes this? And he says, is it not simply not distinguishing law and gospel? We need to learn to rightly just keep these two and the word of God clear from each other, the law and the gospel. And he says, Paul requires this of every single servant of the word. So then he moves on to the pietist errors. And he sees them as of a piece with what Rome has done. So he says, Last time when we worked through the thesis, we considered the pattern that we observed in the New Testament. He describes it like this. People who are sincerely alarmed over their sins, the only correct thing to do is to give them the assurance of the forgiveness of their sins, the assurance of salvation. You simply call upon them to believe and to apply this to themselves and never to question the truth of this heavenly message. And if they're unbaptized, of course, to receive baptism for the remission of sins. As evidence of all this, he said, we saw three examples in the scriptures. First was the way Peter preached to the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Then we saw the conversion of the jailer at Philippi. Remember the guy trembling, asking Paul, what am I do? What should I do? What do I do to be saved? And Paul's just simple answer is, well, believe on the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. You and your house. And I imagine the guy said, so tell me, who is Jesus? What is this about? And then Paul proceeded to, to preach the good news to him. And then the conversion of Paul himself as recounted uh, not once or twice, but three times in the book of Acts. So from that, he said, we learned that it's incorrect to take some alarmed conscience and try to make it observe all kinds of rules for behavior, to tell people the things they have to do, how earnestly, how long they need to pray, to wrestle, to struggle, and so on, till they get this mysterious voice of God speaking in their hearts and saying, now, You've been received into grace. You've been made a child of God. He says, this is the horrible practice, which obviously you sort of see going on there with Rome, but he says, this is what all of the reformed sects, and I think he's speaking particularly about the revivalistic sects here in America, have all engaged in. And he says, it's not like Lutherans have been clear of this. You mentioned the man earlier. He wants to point out to Fresenius as a chief example of how this kind of bad confusion of law and gospel, where an alarm center is sent back to wrestle and strive and struggle, how that actually gained a foothold inside the Lutheran faith. So Fresenius, he starts out sort of like with the book that he published. It was his book on confession and communion, published in 1745, and he said, look, all eight editions sold out in no time. The people were hungry for this teaching, right? And he's going to quote from the book just to show you how a man who tried to be and thought he was a solid Lutheran could also mess up this question. Now, this is where he gets intensely personal because he encountered this book when he was at university. So he states back to what he was like when he first got to the university. He said, you know, I didn't even know the Ten Commandments by heart. I couldn't recite to you what the books of the Bible were. My knowledge of the Bible was pitiful. And I really didn't have the smallest idea about 
the true faith. But he did have an older brother. And the older brother had headed to the university ahead of him and fallen in with a circle of pietistic Christians. And these people kind of embraced young CFW Walther, brought him into their club, if you will. And uh, he soon began to be part of their, their group. He even came to like going to their prayer meetings, but he kept having this uneasiness about the way they were teaching. And he says, I hung out with them, he said, for nearly half a year. And then a theology student who was a good deal older and actually was a pietist, a genuine pietist, as Walter puts it, he joined the group. He's never going to get a call because the guy is absolutely, I mean, at that time, the state church was in the hand of the rationalist, and this guy was clearly a supernaturalist. He wasn't going to get a call. But he said to us, listen to this, you think you are all converted Christians, don't you? But you're not. You've not yet passed through any real penitential agony. And when Walter heard this, he's struggling against it. He's like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right at all. But this guy, he said, he kept repeating the claim till I finally began to ask myself if I really were a Christian. At first, I felt so happy believing in my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he said, a period of spiritual affliction began for me. So I went to the student and I asked him, what must I do to be saved? Remember Paul's answer? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your house. This guy gave him several books to read, among them, Fresenius's book on confession and communion. And Walter says, man, the more I read that book, the more uncertain I became whether I was even really a Christian. I had this inner voice that kept telling me, there is not enough proof that you truly meet the requirements of being a Christian. And to make matters worse, the student was even more pietistic than Fresenius himself. At that time, he said, whenever I opened any religious book dealing with grace and salvation, I'd only read the chapter on repentance. When I got to the chapters in the gospel and faith, I closed the book saying, man, that's not for me, not yet. And so an increasing darkness, Walter said, settled on my soul as I tasted it less and less of the sweetness of the gospel. God knows I didn't mean to deceive myself, he said. I wanted to be saved. In those days, I thought the best books were those that spoke a stern language to sinners and left nothing for the grace of God. Ouch. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part 11 of our series with him on the proper distinction between law and gospel. More of the struggle that CFW Walther underwent as a university student on the other side of the break. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. 
I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Continuing education for the confessional Lutheran. You're listening to Issues Etc. Tennessee is one of the most beautiful places in the USA. And at Praise Lutheran, you'll find the most beautiful gospel. God saving sinners through the death and resurrection of his son for you, given faithfully each Sunday in word and sacrament. Praise Lutheran is a confessional liturgical church located in Maryville, Tennessee, right in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. We're growing, but there's always room for you. Visit us online at praiselutheran.com. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is our guest. So what he's going to do next year is he's going to extensively quote from Frazinus's book, and then he's going to use it as a foil Mm -hmm. to teach the students in this lecture how Frisinius went so terribly wrong yeah, that he had people doubting their salvation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the whole thing is marked, don't do this. <laughs> you know, the whole thing. But before he actually gets to quoting the book, Todd, notice that he has that little thing that he throws in there. Well, he went to a physician of the soul, he says. Yeah. He said, then one day I heard about a man who was said to be a real spiritual doctor. I wrote to him. But in reality, I planned to throw his letter into the stove if he said anything about the grace of God and the gospel. However, his letter was so full of comfort that I couldn't resist the arguments. This is how I was freed from the miserable state into which I had been led chiefly by Fresenius. He doesn't name him, but this is Martin Stefan. This is the man who will lead the Saxon immigration to the United States and who will later himself fall from grace. But he himself was at that time a real beacon in Germany, holding up the pure truth of the gospel. And so Walther, when he received the letter from Stefan, was comforted in a way that he had received no comfort from the pietist who kept on urging him to try harder, to do more spiritual exercises, to wrestle further with God, and not to stop until he had that experience of grace by which they meant a feeling that he had been received into grace. So he goes back and he just sort of that throws that in as, as a biographical note, but then he goes back to the errors that he finds in Fresenius. And this book is just really, I mean, it, you, you read it and you go, really? 
he said that and, and, and this book sold copy after copy after copy? Well, listen. Fresenius separates all communicants into nine different classes. I didn't fit into any one of them. By the way, the saint at Pastor Kyle was certainly a sincere Christian, and he assured me he had no better luck either. No, nobody could figure out where they actually fit in this schemata. So here they are. First of all, there are unworthy communicants. Secondly, there are people who sincerely seek grace, but who have obtained no assurance. Third, there are people who are assured of their state of grace, especially spiritual infants or weak beginners in Christianity. There are new or young Christian people who have attained some strength of faith. Then there are experienced Christians or spiritual parents of other believers. And then Christians who suffer from great spiritual afflictions. And he said, even though I was afflicted, I surely didn't fit into that class. I wouldn't put myself there. There were those people who rejoice in God and there were people who had fallen from God's grace, and then there were people who were in a state of distress. Speaking of the first type, Fresenius writes, If sinners of this type are to obtain the forgiveness of sin and to receive the body and blood of Christ worthily, everything depends on their conversion. Accordingly, I will here offer faithful instruction regarding the points that need to be observed on their part for them to be thoroughly converted in a short period of time. You want to cry out right away, Fresenius, what do you do with baptism? What did you ever do with the promises God gave you as a child? They seem to be long since forgotten. Walter adds, you know, when he read in a short period of time, well, that sounded like gospel to me, and I wished it might be so in my case. He said, I've tested the good quality of this instruction on many sinners and have found that it resulted in the certain salvation of everyone who faithfully followed it. And listen to the language there. I'm giving you a recipe and a prescription, which if you are careful to do exactly the way that I instruct you, you will have certainty of salvation. So with great heartfelt joy, I observed that even sinners who had been bound by Satan with exceptionally strong chains were by this method in a short period of time brought to a state where they could be regarded as new creatures in Christ. Simple, straightforward method requires no effort on the part of the patient all they have to do is let God work in them. Well, that sounds good. But then he says, for it is he, after all, who must give us everything that we need. But he seems to forget all about that. So he says, everything depends on three rules the sinner must observe. They must be taken from the innermost nature of the divine order of salvation, and if faithfully applied, they're going to help the worst slave of Satan. If anyone is not helped, he's got to blame his own unfaithfulness for it, not the rules. So this is the rules. First, the first rule is pray for grace. The second, be watchful, lest you lose grace. And the third, meditate on the word of God in the proper manner. So since sinners cannot convert themselves, they must pray for the grace of conversion. And since the grace that they've obtained in answer to prayer can easily be lost, they have to be watchful. And since the word of God is the means of grace by which we are enlightened and regenerated, that is, our hearts are changed, Sinners must cherish the word of God. So this shows that these three rules have been taken from the very nature of the divine order of salvation. So then he offers a brief explanation of the rules to help you really sort of get them. <laughs> Walter says, as if an unconverted person could seriously pray for conversion. Fresenius should have said, this person must hear the word of God. But he addresses that in the third rule. Fresenius' whole plan makes conversion dependent 
upon man's efforts to obtain grace. That's the most important critique Walther offers of how Fresenius proceeds. He's doing it backwards because he's building it not on the word of God giving what it says, but on the steps which the person who wants to be converted needs to follow. And even the language wants to be converted should be raising big warning bells in our head. And this is Fresenius again. This prayer must be of a different quality than that of a person who is still under the rule of sin. It must not be a frigid, unfamiliar, lifeless operation of the lips, but it must be offered up with great heartfelt earnestness. In other words, you got to really mean it when you pray. You got to feel it in your heart. You notice a common thread there? The, The validation of the whole thing is hanging on emotion, on feeling. So Walter says, Fresenius actually speaks to a person in whom sin is still dominant with his primary error being this false distinction between being converted and being awakened. In reality, if you're awakened, that is, you're raised from spiritual death, you're already converted. It's not a stage of moving from one to the other. It's like you are or you aren't. It's binary. So after conversion, that person must indeed pray and wrestle. All Christians must. At that point, his faith is like an infant, and it can easily die if it's not given nourishment. You're not able to do this until you are already converted and able to believe. And he says, how are you going to do it? Well, you enter your room as the Savior advises you in Matthew 6, 6, or you can speak to God in private. You kneel, and with all your might, you scream out for grace, not only the grace that God may forgive you your sins, but also for the grace that your heart may be changed and that the love of sin be wiped out inside of you. Fresenius speaks as if forgiveness of sins and renewal of the heart were two different things occurring at different times. The fact is, folks, your sins are forgiven, your heart is changed, and the love of sin is destroyed. It all happens at once. He writes, since Christ has acquired for us this first kind, converting grace, we base even our first prayer on his merit. So he speaks of converted people as if they still had to be converted, for to base one's prayer on the merits of Christ means to believe in Christ. And Fresenius' claim that we should cry to God so that he would grant converting grace because our Lord Jesus paid such a precious ransom for us Well, no matter how good the intention of Fresenius may have been, what he writes here, Walther says, is simply awful. Even though he speaks about the merits of Christ, he's directing man to his own works. And by those, absolutely nothing will ever be achieved. And you should offer this prayer, Fresenius says, not just once or twice, but daily with sighs and weeping until you obtain grace. Now, Walther stops and asks, and what is that supposed to mean? His advice to cry to God until you obtain grace means, as his words that follow show, until you have a feeling of grace. The sweet satisfaction that satisfies the heart. That's what these people call grace. And then Walther makes what's one of the most beautiful Lutheran statements in the entire book. He says, but grace is not something for which you must look in your heart. It's in the heart of God. Grace cannot be found in me. It is outside of me. He says, from your own experience, this assures you that your heart 
has been truly changed. So, I mean, Walter very clearly talks about a salvation of grace that is extranos, you know, on the outside of us, coming from the outside in. Presenius wants you to find it on the inside. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We'll continue this vein because the very next thing Walter has to say in evaluating Fresenius is, had he been describing a Christian already, all of this would be true. But he does not believe he's describing a Christian. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I'm Todd Wilkin. We'll be right back. The fundamental question that these parables ask is this, is it possible for someone who has fallen away from the faith, a baptized child, to be brought to repentance? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It has to be yes. Or I'm damned. And so are you. Pastor Peter Bender speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. But if we as earthly parents love our children in spite of the fact that they rebel and maybe wander from home, how much more does the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus never cease? That is the birthright that you and I have been given in our baptism. That is our consolation. You can watch and listen to Pastor Peter Bender's teaching, Making the Case for a Dying Man's Consolation, and all of the presentations from this year's conference for a contribution of $300. It's available via on-demand video stream or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern to pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Emmanuel Lutheran, Arcadia, Indiana. Prince of Peace Lutheran, Valparaiso, Indiana. Martin Luther Chapel, Marathon, Florida, All Saints Lutheran, Charlotte, North Carolina, Zion Lutheran, Winter Garden, Florida, St. Paul Lutheran, Eden Valley, Minnesota, Mount Olive Lutheran, Duluth, Minnesota, Bethany Lutheran, Naperville, Illinois, Emmanuel Lutheran, Lewiston, Minnesota, and Pilgrim Lutheran, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including issues, etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click support, donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, 
We'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. You're linked to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part 11 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon. He's author of the book Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. These books are published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. I want to come back to something I mentioned before the break, because he pauses at this moment. He says, if good old Fresenius had said all of these things, which he says, if you apply mm-hmm. them to an unbeliever, just awful, of a believing Christian, they would be correct. What does he mean? Well, I think he means the exact same thing that Martin Chemnitz meant when he wrote men, by which he meant Christian men, are to be admonished that they, through the Spirit, should mortify the deeds of the flesh and firmly adhere to Christ by faith and through use of the word and sacraments become more and more united with Jesus and seek from God the gift of perseverance and wrestle, lest the wantonness of the flesh drive out the gift of perseverance. So there it is. The exact same point that Fresenius was making, but he was making it about an unbeliever coming to faith. And Walter said, no, 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 no. That's the way a believer who has come to faith does indeed still struggle and wrestle against the temptations of his own flesh. So very, very important point. I'm glad you you sort of stopped us there and pointed that out. Fresenius, though, sort of anticipates Walter's criticism, and he comes back with this. Some may say, granted, that grace is obtained by praying, yet how can a sinner pray in such a way? Is not prayer itself the result of divine grace, something we do not produce in ourselves while we are dead in sins? Well, I mean, in other words, it's just like he read Walter's mind there. And Fresenius answers, this kind of prayer is indeed an operation of grace that the sinner, being dead, cannot perform by his own power. But we know that prevenient or awakening grace quite often and earnestly knocks on our hearts in order to awaken us from our deep sleep in sin. Whenever this happens, grace offers to sinners something that they do not have, namely the strength to offer sighs and cries for help from the depths of sin as they should. Prevenient grace, we're right back to the very Roman Catholic picture that we noted at the beginning of the chapter, right? He's going to reach you the ability so that you can then do this. And it comes to you by grace, grace then not as favor in the heart of God toward you, but grace as some spiritual power planted into you that you can use with your own natural powers then to cooperate. So he goes on, Sinners themselves can observe this if they are attentive. Often the word of God, sickness, the death of other people or terrible diseases, the thought of their own death, of future judgment of hell and heaven and similar things, make them uneasy about their condition. (laughs) Walter says, this is extremely dangerous. If they've not experienced everything that, according to hearsay, they should be experiencing, some righteous souls might start to think, yes, I presumed that I was awakened, but obviously I'm not yet converted. And he goes, thousands and even millions of people have tortured themselves thinking, I am not converted. And meaning, because I didn't go through the experience which he here describes. Fresenius goes on to say, in that moment, a feeling wells up in them that makes them yearn 
for salvation. They secretly sigh for grace. Walter says, well, so what is that? What is the sighing for grace if that's not already the first spark of faith, if it's not something that's given to them so that they can actually work their way into grace? Now, this desire and sighing is not an action of one's own nature. Rather, it comes from an energy that awakening grace has already produced in them. If they accept this energy, it's no longer impossible for them to call upon God, pray, and cry as the condition requires. By doing this, their strength for praying is continually increased by grace. So he says, Walter, I mean, just in his typical blunt way, he says, where do you find any of this in Scripture? Nowhere. After we become believers, Fresenius tells us, we will have to wrestle with the devil because he will start to rob us of the grace we have received. That is indeed, as I have stated, when a person is still unconverted, he's spiritually dead, and thus he doesn't have any strength. Even if strength were breathed into him, he couldn't use it as long as he's dead. Try breathing strength into a statue and let me know whether or not it moves. No, that statue will remain dead. It will not move. And Walter then just concludes, all modern theology is just completely in the grip of this error because it really claims that a man is able to convert himself by some spiritual powers that are conferred upon him. Fresenius just keeps on running down this uh, same track, and he, he says, Now God cannot despise his own work. It follows then that the prayers of such people are truly heard, and the experience of many people confirms this fact. And then Walter says, well, of course, when one makes false distinctions between being awakened and being converted and even says people still in spiritual blindness are enlightened, this can happen. The second rule, Fresenius continues, is this. A person earnestly desiring to be converted must be on guard to keep the grace that God has conferred upon him. He writes, when God gives the power to pray at the same time, he gives the power to be watchful. And this power has to be exercised with great care and earnestness. In many ways, doesn't this just rob you of any sense of peace in Christ, Todd? I mean, the thought is like, oh, yeah, I mean, he's given you the gift. But, hey, if you're not very careful here, he's going to snatch it back away from you. You can understand why Fresenius' book went through eight editions, because everyone who read it was immediately convinced that they were no longer a Christian, a Christian. And, that the, and that their baptism was useless. And so I'm sure ideas like that spread like wildfire. We're talking with Pastor Will Whedon in part 11 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We'll be right back to it next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with back in Antioch and back in the saddle. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. The gospel comes to Philippi. Paul and Silas in jail. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? 
Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. The cross is always relevant. You're listening to Issues Etc. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four C. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. It's part 11 of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So where does Walter go next on Fresenius? Well, there are really two more things that he picks up that I think we need to cover in detail to finish out the lecture for this particular day. Fresenius says that, that the person should take advantage of such times to enter more thoroughly into grace by his sighing and supplications. You know, when he's going through difficult times, it's the perfect time for him to actually enter deeper and deeper into grace. And Walter adds this beautiful telling comment again. He says, it is horrible to hear Fresenius speak of trying to penetrate more deeply into grace since grace is something in the heart of God. Grace is obtained either completely or not at all. It is never given piecemeal, as Luther puts it. I love that. I remember the Dr. Nagel would always say the whole thing. It's the lot, right? He, he doesn't give you pieces. He gives you the lot. And uh, even a, a, like an, an Orthodox theologian like Alexander Schmemann would, would write on baptismal grace that he says the point is he, he, he gives you the whole thing. You can only grow into it because he's already delivered to you all his mercy and love in Christ Jesus. It's entirely been given to you. It's not something that you don't, you know, that, that, that you are going to have to seek to acquire more and more of. I think that's why at the end of Second Peter, Peter urges us not to have grace grow in us, which seems to be Fresenius's picture, but instead he says, you grow in grace. You grow, the grace has been given to you whole. Now you continue to appropriate it and grow in it. So I think that's a really important point that's made here. Walter adds, what Fresenius says about the necessity of watchfulness for conversion involves an ambiguous use of the term grace, which is the cause of the error when he cites, for a while they run well. 
he overlooks Paul's charge against the Galatians and that it was directed to people who were already converted, not to people who were trying to convert. And then the last thing that I think he really picks up beautifully here that we miss is comes to his third rule, the power of the word of God. And he's telling you, you know, you've got to meditate on the word of God in just the right way. And Walter says, we will see that Fresenius is speaking exclusively of the power of the divine word to change the heart of man. He is not speaking of, and in fact, he seems to be uninformed about the collative power of the word of God, which not only describes gifts such as justification, but also at the same time confers and communicates them. The statement Whoever believes and is baptized produces faith in itself and also communicates the blessings described. So Walter puts it like this. I really love this. He says, when we listen to a preacher, we need to imagine God is standing right there behind him. When he speaks words of comfort to us, we must say to ourselves, this is God who is speaking to me right here and now. When he pronounces forgiveness of sins on us, we must not merely think that because these words are in the Bible, we're to receive some benefit from them. We need to say to ourselves, by these words, God right now is imparting to me the forgiveness of his sins. He said, but this doctrine, alas, he says, has all but vanished from the Lutheran church a long time ago. Oh, how sad that is. The idea of the performative nature of the word of God. He's going right back here to what Luther meant when he said, it's a tatvurt, a word that does what it says. So when God says to you, your sins are forgiven, he's not giving you a piece of information. He's giving you the forgiveness of all your sins. When he says to you, you are at peace with me, he's not giving you a piece of information. He is declaring you to be at peace with himself. This is a beautiful treatment of the word of God. And Fresenius just totally misses that, that the word of God is performative on us, is active in us, doing what it says. Fresenius writes, a person desiring to be converted must meditate upon the word of God in a proper manner. And this is done by reading as well as by hearing the word. The word is read properly when a person reads it for the purpose of being enlightened and transformed into a new person by virtue of its power. Walter again just makes the telling comment. You know, he doesn't mention at all that this word not only speaks, but also offers and gives, and that the person who believes this has what it says. The word distributes and gives. But according to Presenius, everything depends on the behavior of the person who's doing the hearing. So he, he also th throws in one more little, I, I think almost comical comment, where you know Fresenius basically says, you need to savor it, read slowly, verse by verse, you know, and, and take it in. And Walter admits, hey, you know, there, there are times you need to deal with the Word of God that way. But, you know, he says, you also need, true Christians, you need to read the whole Bible quickly so that you will generally remember what it says. And at the same time, of course, you'll be studying the Word of God quietly and, you know, piece by piece. But I think that's a really important thing. Walter encourages this big sweep of the scriptures, which Luther also did. Are you going to understand everything all at once? No, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep reading. Just keep reading and immerse yourself in what they say. It will take care of giving the gift of faith, which is what the word does when it's collative. It's able to give what it says.
He ends his treatise here on Fresenius by saying, but now I ask you, where do we find an advice of this kind Yeah, he's like, in the Bible? Show this to me in the Bible, guys. Anything like what Fresenius has just been preaching here. He said, whenever the apostles preached and their hearers asked them, what must we do to be saved? They all answered, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the only correct method for the preacher who wants to lead his people to faith and to an assurance of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And when the preacher follows this method, he must not forget to recommend constant prayers, personal struggles in wrestling with sin, and the proper use of the word of God. But this correct way assures people that their sins are forgiven and that they are in a state of grace. He said, just because Orthodox Lutherans oppose Fresenius's wrong method, we shouldn't draw the conclusion that we oppose genuine, earnest Christianity, earnest and unceasing prayer, earnest wrestling with sin, and constant watchfulness. In other words, don't let the opposition to Fresenius here in his pietism result in impiety on our part. Instead, he lifts up actual, real piety, but sees it all as flowing from the confidence and the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Pray, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week on the Macedonian call, the conversion of Lydia, Paul and Silas in prison, the Philippian jailer converted in Acts chapters 15 and 16. Listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org, the LPR mobile app, or your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. Will, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. When we come back in Hour 2 of Issues, etc., we'll kick things off with Dr. Carrie Gress, concluding a conversation on the history and future of feminism. She's written the book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Dr. Ross Johnson will get us an update on the Maui fire relief efforts, and we'll also talk about post-Dobbs pro-life momentum with Harry Shearer. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Repentance and forgiveness, sin and grace, law and gospel, more than cliches, real preaching for real people in need of hearing the real Christ. Christ for you in the divine service at St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, Illinois, where we gather every Saturday night at 6 and on the Lord's Day, Sunday mornings at 7.45 and 10. Look for the Church of the Neon Cross on I-55 between exits 30 and 33. Find us on the web, stpaullutheranchurchhamill.org. St. Paul Lutheran Church of Hamill, where there is the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation for the people of God. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? 
we'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.